In this passage, Jesus is going to free all of us up from all kinds of misconceptions about forgiveness. One of the reasons why forgiveness is such a challenge to Christians today is because we've been taught that forgiveness always results in reconciliation. Turn the other cheek, for love keeps no record of wrongs, and that if there is no reconciliation, it's because there's no forgiveness. But Jesus is going to show us in this passage right here, folks, that's not true. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. They're not the same. And it's interesting that the perfect example of this is none other than the cross itself. By sending his son to the cross, God was forgiving the whole world. That's what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world, not just certain people. The whole world was forgiven. But God isn't reconciled to everyone. Because John chapter 3 also states that some choose darkness over the light. They reject reconciliation. A lot of them want to come up with their own terms. But that's not the way it works. And Jesus is going to map this all out for us here in this chapter. So let's get started. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. To put this in context, Jesus just spoke of how far the father goes in search of a child who's gone astray. So a saved person who is living in sin is the backdrop of what we're fixing to get into here. Jesus says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, do what? Turn the other cheek. Love keeps no record of wrongs. No, that's not what he said. Do what? If your brother offends you, or more specifically written, if your brother sins against you or trespasses against you, what do you do about it? And Jesus is not talking about some petty little disagreement. This is more than that, because in Proverbs 19, verse 11, it says it's good to restrain your anger and overlook transgressions. So what Jesus is fixing to get into here is not meant to be applied to every single time somebody burps or interrupts you in a conversation or accidentally took the last Coke in the fridge. That's petty, insignificant, and Proverbs 19.11 says basically in a nice way to get over it. A wise person would just get over that, restrain your anger, overlook transgressions. But some transgressions cannot be overlooked. What about those? Well, Jesus lays out a procedure for us here. He says, first, go to the one who trespassed against you. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Want him back. Now, folks, we're not talking about winning people back into salvation. We're talking about winning them back into fellowship. You're a Christian. This other person is a Christian. You've been hurt. You've been sinned against. What do you do about it? Jesus says, you go to that person alone, privately, and you tell him what it is. And if that person listens to you, then your fellowship's been restored. And doing this isn't only good for you, it's good for them too. It's good for you so you can get your fellowship back, but it's good for them. If that person is a child of God and they're interested in growing in the Spirit, growing in Christ, then they want to know that they've hurt you so that they can straighten this out and make it right. Repenting of it, apologizing for it, and making things right. Or maybe straightening out any confusion that might be there. Maybe there's more to the story that they can explain that you would understand and accept. The point is, keep the lines of communication open. Go to that person alone, talk about it, and get it straightened out. If they're a mature Christian, they're going to want this. They want to be told what their fault is. They want to have that straightened out. But if they don't, verse 16, Jesus says, If they will not hear you, if they won't listen, take one or two more, so that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Just get some help. Not too many, just one or two others, because this isn't about teaming up on the offending brother. 
This is about making certain that the entire situation is firmly established for what it really is. And by saying one or two others, Jesus is implying other brothers. These are members of the family. These aren't members of the world. These are members of the family of God who have the Holy Spirit to guide them in discernment. This is also to help resolve any possibility that you might be part of the problem. You may be too close to the issue in order to deal with it appropriately with the person who sinned against you. And then again, maybe you're not the problem. Maybe they are the problem. The point is, is to get one or two more Christians who are outside of the situation so they can look at this rationally, prayerfully, and help in restoring fellowship and establishing what the right thing to do is. Then in verse 17, Jesus says, if the offending brother still won't listen, then take it to the church. And unfortunately, our English Bibles use the word church, and that's unfortunate because it's misleading. Jesus isn't saying next Sunday morning, step up to the pulpit and broadcast the problem over the microphone to the whole church just before the sermon starts. Whenever the New Testament uses the word church, the word that's actually there is ecclesia, which means assembly. It's the word Jesus uses on a grand scale to include all those adopted into the family. So what Jesus is saying is, if your offending brother won't listen to you or one or two others, then get the whole family involved. Get however many it takes. If your local network of fellow Christians is 10 people, then get them all involved in this. And once all of that takes place, if the offending brother really is a child of God and they're interested in walking in the Spirit and growing in Christ, they're not going to be upset about this, folks. If they're not trying to serve two masters, then that person will greatly appreciate this. The very fact that their personal relationship and walk with the Lord matters so much to the whole group that so many people have been privately concerned about them in love, all of that in combination with the conviction of the Holy Spirit inside of them, all of that will work together to bring about the appropriate outcome. The sin will be dealt with, rebuked, repented of, and the offending brother will be forgiven and fellowship will be restored. At least that's the preferred goal. That's what should happen. That's what we want to happen. But in case it doesn't happen, verse 17, Jesus continues and says, if he refuses to listen even to the whole assembly, then in that case, judge not lest you be judged, turn the other cheek, for love keeps no record of wrongs. Right? No, that's not what it says. Look at this, folks. Jesus says, if he neglects to listen to the assembly, then let him be unto you as a heathen. Some of your English Bibles will say Gentile, which was synonymous with being a heathen if you were a Jew. Some of your English Bibles will say publican. They were public officials representing tax collectors, which is why other translations will say tax collector. Some paraphrases even say thief, because that's what they were known for. Point is, folks, it's surprising to many to find out that Jesus' attitude is that once these three steps have been taken and the offending brother will not be reconciled, you are not to turn the other cheek. You are not to act like nothing happened. You are to consider these people as heathens, as though they're not even saved. What is a heathen, folks? We hear that word a lot and kind of laugh, but biblically speaking, what does that word mean? It means someone who is opposed to God and isn't saved. Now, notice Jesus didn't say you could remove a person's salvation. You can't revoke the Holy Spirit from somebody. But what Jesus is saying is that you are to consider them as though they aren't saved. Let them be unto you as heathens. Now, folks, 
We're going to find out here in a minute that there are no limits to forgiveness. Peter's going to ask Jesus, how many times can my brother offend me before I don't have to forgive him anymore? And Jesus basically gives him an answer that implies that forgiveness is unlimited. But notice from what Jesus says here, it's obvious to me that forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing because this person has been ostracized from fellowship. Not unforgiven, but unreconciled. We have a very thorough example of this in practice. In First and Second Corinthians, there was someone who considered themselves a Christian within the local group of Christians in Corinth who was guilty of incest. And in the name of Christian forgiveness and tolerance and kindness, the other Christians in the group were looking the other way. But Paul called them out on this. Let's look at this and see how Paul applied what Jesus just mentioned here and how it all turned out. You'll be surprised. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's spend some time over there and look at this, folks. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Paul says, It's actually reported as common knowledge that among you there is sexual immorality, and what's worse, it's the kind of sexual immorality that isn't tolerated even among the heathen, that one should have his own father's wife. Now, because Paul says the man has his own father's wife and not his mother, some study Bibles presume to say that Paul is speaking undoubtedly of what we would today call a stepmother. And that's easier for us to accept when reading this because we can see that happening. It happens in movies and soaps. Young man's mother dies. His middle-aged father remarries. The woman he marries is a gold digger who doesn't love him. So she eventually falls in love with the son who's actually closer to her in age than the father. And the son falls in love with her. And they begin this adulterous relationship behind the scenes. And sometimes even the old man, when he finds out, looks the other way. It's just so embarrassing. There's movies and soaps that play on that theme all the time. And if that's the scenario that was playing out among the Christian assembly in Corinth, no wonder Paul's upset. I mean, what in the world is this kind of behavior doing among professed Christians? Even the heathen don't tolerate this. And in the very next verse, Paul says to them, and you're puffed up and arrogant. You ought to be grieving. Now, since Paul accuses them of being puffed up, they may have been guilty as a group of abusing the blood of Jesus Christ as a license to sin. To some people, that's what the Christian gospel is all about. Jesus died on the cross so we can do whatever we want. And folks, they believe that, and they're missing the point. The cross eternally saves us from God's wrath, but that says nothing of a loving Father's discipline. Nothing can save you from that, except obedience. But there's another possibility of what was going on. This might not be about pride in the freedom to sin, but actually a religious, arrogant pride, which is a little different. Paul accused them of being puffed up. They may have been so proud and arrogant in their religious piety that they wouldn't dare openly acknowledge the sin in their midst. In other words, it's easier to save face and sweep it under the rug than to deal with it out in the open. And if that's the case then it's quite possible that the sexual immorality here is more than just adultery. It might have been incest, folks. It might have actually been the guy's biological mother. And don't rule that possibility out just because you can't comprehend someone doing this. Because when it comes to sin, Satan doesn't draw the line anywhere. There's no place where Satan says, you know, that's just going too far. He doesn't do that. Now, we don't hear about these cases as much because the scenario isn't as juicy and as entertaining as a gold digger having an affair with her husband's son. But this happens more often than anyone would want to admit, folks. 
A lot of people don't want to get into it. The study Bibles shun from that view. But that might very well be what was going on, folks. There are actual cases between both fathers and daughters, as well as between mothers and sons, that start as incestuous statutory rape when they're young that eventually turns into a mutual, sick relationship as the son or daughter grows up. You don't hear about these cases because, one, it's not a money grabber in entertainment. It turns people's stomachs. And number two, it's illegal. And if this case was classic incest, it would certainly explain why a pompous, arrogant, puffed-up religious group of people would have kept silent about it. It's just too much of a scandal. Paul says this kind of sexual immorality isn't tolerated even among the heathen. What are you guys silently puffed up and arrogant about? You ought to be grieving. And I think that's what Paul probably meant, folks, but we don't know for certain. One might ask, well, what about the woman? How come she isn't held accountable for anything? Well, it's because she's probably not part of the assembly. Whether or not she's the one that got all this started is irrelevant. The fact is, she's probably not part of the assembly, but he is. If his father's wife is his stepmother, as many people presume, then the sexual immorality that Paul refers to is adultery. But if his father's wife is his biological mother, then the sexual immorality that Paul speaks of is adultery and incest. Either way, the guy is willfully living in this sin. And the Christian assembly he's with knows about it and is tolerating it. Not saying or doing anything about it. Now today we're taught to judge not, lest ye be judged. But let's see what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you're arrogant and puffed up. You ought to be grieving. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already passed judgment concerning him who has done this deed. Now, folks, notice this is skipping steps one and two, because Paul assumes that since the whole congregation knows about it, there's no need to go to this person privately. There's no need to get one or two others. Everybody knows about this. It's made its way all the way back to Paul. So this is step three. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You're unreconciled. Paul continues and says, When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Whoa! Wait a minute. Nobody teaches this. This is in the Bible? What does that mean, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? What in the world does that mean? Paul continues, So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's saying, we don't even know if this guy's saved. Because what's the fruit that he's producing? He's producing the fruit of sexual immorality. What did Jesus say? You will know a person by their fruit. Well, if a person isn't bearing any Christian fruit, but they're bearing sinful fruit, then how do we know they're saved? So Paul says, get that guy out of there. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, what does that mean for the destruction of the flesh? Folks, The flesh is the instrument of sin, and Satan is the one who wages war against us 24-7 using our flesh, taking advantage of all the weaknesses that our flesh have. But when we're saved, we're given the Holy Spirit. Jesus called him another comforter. 
we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is provide us with an alternate power source to carry out God's will in our lives. Our flesh can't do it. And the flesh is not something that a Christian can mature. You don't outgrow sin. The flesh continues to carry everything it had before you got saved, which is why death is a blessing, folks. That's when the flesh is finally destroyed. And we're given new hardware that is sin-free. But until that day comes, our software is trapped inside this body, this machine that is corrupted with viruses that Satan, the ultimate hacker, installed thousands of years ago. The Holy Spirit acts as somewhat of an antivirus and even a shield. Now, Satan is sneaky. He can still get through every now and then, depending on what's going on. The point is, Christians are like computer machines that are inflicted with a sin virus, but protected with the Holy Spirit antivirus program. The influence to sin comes along, it quarantines it somewhere so that you are not imprisoned to a virus or a Trojan. If it slips through, then it cleanses it after the repent button is pushed. You can do your thing like you're supposed to do, even though you're still inside hardware that's inflicted with a virus. Problem is, some Christians, a lot of Christians actually, they are installed antivirus and they never turn it on. They're still operating as though they did not have the Holy Spirit installed in them. And what Paul's trying to tell these Christians in Corinth is, you've got somebody in your assembly whose viruses are not quarantined, having a free-for-all with the hardware. He's out there having sex with his father's wife. He's getting no protection from the Holy Spirit. Now, that either means he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, or he does have it, and he's not turning it on. He's not walking in the Spirit, and he's not getting any help from you guys. If he's not saved, he's a fraud, and he doesn't belong in your assembly. If he is saved, he's deliberately choosing to live in sin, refusing to turn on the Holy Spirit, and he's given over to Satan. So Paul's not telling them, give him over to Satan. He's already in Satan's hands. By choosing to live in sin, he's given himself over to Satan. So he's telling the Christians in Corinth, let Satan have him. If this guy will not turn on the Holy Spirit, there's nothing you can do for him. Hopefully, eventually, he will be tormented enough by Satan that he will finally break down and turn on the Holy Spirit. So cutting ties from this guy is actually in his best interest. But folks, that's not the real reason Paul wants the Christians in Corinth to disassociate themselves from this guy. Let's keep reading what Paul said. Verse 6, Paul says, Your self-glorying, your boasting, your being puffed up is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse and purge out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened. Folks, leaven was a symbolic type of sin because when you put it in measures of meal, it corrupted it by puffing it up. And you'll remember Jesus' parable about how a woman hid leaven in three measures of meal. I mean, it's a shocking parable. Once it's been corrupted with leaven, the whole thing is leavened. You can't have unleavened bread if there's any leaven in it, even a little bit. It's like pure water with 2% mud in it. If there's 2% mud in it, then it's not pure water anymore. So Paul continues and says, For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to keep company with sexually immoral people, although I didn't mean the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the greedy of this world, or with the extortioners or idolaters of this world, for if that's what I meant, then you would need to leave the world altogether. 
But I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or a brother who is greedy, or a brother who is an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. I wrote to you not even to eat with such a person. I find this interesting, folks. Paul's pretty much saying we expect the world to act like the world. I mean, why should we be upset when we see them acting the way they do? Who cares? But if I'm a Christian and I am seeking out the company of another Christian for the sake of Christian fellowship, Paul says don't keep company with anyone named a Christian who is sexually immoral. Don't even eat with these folks. So that's Paul's advice. That Actually, it's more than advice. It's pretty much a command. He tells the Christian assembly in Corinth to purge this person from their fellowship. Get him out of there. Kick him out. Disassociate yourselves from them. Cut ties. Your differences are unreconcilable. Now, somebody might come along and say, but Josh, isn't that mean? How are they going to get any help if they're not within Christians? Apparently, he wasn't getting any help, period. I mean, that's like putting alcohol on a wound and you start grappling because it stings. Well, if you start taking all the things out of the alcohol that make it sting, it's not going to kill the germs. So what good is it? What good is being in a community of Christians if the Christians you're in a community of are not going to convict you of sin when it's taken over your life? And see, folks, this is why people confuse forgiveness with reconciliation. Forgiveness is a matter of the heart, which is why we should never run out of forgiveness, especially if we're Christians. We all make mistakes. We've all committed sins against God as well as each other. But this isn't talking about forgiveness. It's talking about reconciliation here. Even Christians who have been saved by the cross, whose sins are covered, whose penalty has already been paid, even they, still under God's grace, forgiven by God, they can be temporarily unreconciled to God if they're choosing to walk in sin. They can pray and they feel like God doesn't hear their prayers. They pray every day, every night, every morning. It's like talking to the wall if they're purposefully choosing to live in sin. Now, that doesn't mean they've lost their salvation, but it does mean they've lost fellowship with God. The whole book of Romans talks about that. First John chapter 1 covers that. So if God, who is known all throughout the Bible for his unlimited surpassing forgiveness, if even he cannot be reconciled to everyone who sinned against him, then he would never expect his children to have that ability either. Forgiveness is a matter of the heart, but reconciliation is the restoration of fellowship with the one who sinned, and that requires certain conditions. Now, we saw what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. I wonder how things turned out. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. But if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a man, his punishment by the majority is enough. So you should now turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with too much sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or devices. 
Hmm. Something's changed, folks. Something took place between the first letter and the second letter that we don't know about. We can gather from what we've read so far that they kicked him out. But the person's repentance, we don't know anything about it, but let's see if we can find some more about this tucked away in this letter. Advance to chapter 7, starting in verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter, so although I wrote to you it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Now, folks, Paul doesn't come right out and say that the man who was having sex with his father's wife has now repented and stopped. He never says that. He only commends the Corinthian Christians for repenting themselves of tolerating it before and then asks them to now allow this guy to return. Now, from that, we can safely assume that the man who was having sex with his father's wife has now repented and stopped, and he also desires to continue an open relationship with the Lord aided with Christian fellowship. We can assume that pretty safely, because if the guy who had been kicked out was still having sex with his father's wife, and here comes Paul saying, I'll go ahead and take him back in, if that had happened, Paul would have been guilty of the very same thing that he accused the Corinthians of in the first letter. So you put all that together. The assembly in Corinth kicked this guy out. He repented. Paul got wind of it, found out about it through Titus, probably. So now Paul's telling the Corinthians, okay, the sin's been dealt with. He's repented. He's moved on. God's forgiven him. I've forgiven him. So, hey, I'm glad you're taking all of this serious. You're not just farting around playing church. You're the real deal. He's the real deal. I'm glad to hear that. Let's move on. Now, folks, the reason why I brought up that example given to us in those Corinthian letters is because people today think forgiveness always means reconciliation, and it doesn't. Forgiveness is a matter of the heart, but reconciliation is the restoration of fellowship with the one who sinned. And that requires certain conditions. And you, the Christian, with the direction of God's word, have the authority over deciding what those conditions are and then judging for yourselves whether or not you think those conditions have been met. And folks, this is biblical. No place in the Bible are we told to tolerate wickedness in the name of forgiveness or in the name of not judging people. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, that the spiritual man, in other words, the child of God who's been given the mind of Christ, the Christian, he judges all things. Look that up. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. It says the spiritual man judges and tries all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Why? What are we judging and what for? It's to analyze the truth of a person's character. Forgiveness isn't ignoring blatant evidence that defines who a person is and what their character is all about. 
You can forgive a rapist for raping you, but until he's repented and turned from his wicked ways, he's still a rapist. You can forgive him till the Lord returns. He's still a rapist. So we're called to analyze character and judge within ourselves and within our family. Paul earlier said, what's the point of judging the world? The world is the world. But inside our family, inside our group, we Christians, we're called to analyze character and judge within ourselves and within our family. And we have the ability via the scriptures and the Holy Spirit to do that. Why are we called to do that? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Paul says, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals and it corrupts good character. Interesting that Paul prefaced that with don't be deceived, as though through the Holy Spirit, Paul knew that forgiveness would be twisted into a doctrine that God never intended. No place does God condone the silent acceptance of trespasses against us from other members within the family of God as though it's okay. If you've personally been trespassed against, confront them. If the trespasser is unwilling to listen, confront them again with one or two other Christians. If the trespasser is still unwilling to listen, then bring in your whole assembly of Christians. And then if the trespasser is still unwilling to listen, even to the whole assembly, then you and your whole assembly is to cut ties with the trespasser. You remove them from your fellowship. You separate yourselves from them. And you do it with the righteous, God-given, biblically endorsed judgment of them being heathen. Those are Jesus' words here in Matthew 18 and Paul's endorsement in First and Second Corinthians. Folks, you might notice that there's a little heat in my voice. It's because I've grown up in a world that accepts with inside the body of Christ divorce, infidelity, rape, abortion, sex outside of marriage, you name it. Instead of going to the word for answers, we make up excuses and call it love. Just like the Corinthians who were puffed up in pride. No wonder Jesus prophesied that the kingdom would be like a woman who hid leaven in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. We are living in those days right now. The whole body's pretty much leavened, folks. Kids grow up in homes that are split apart. The dad or the mom, in some cases, is slipping around on their spouse, and the kids are supposed to accept their mom, their dad, and their new partners. And what makes it worse is we're all supposed to be Christians about it. Well, the Christian thing to do is to start cutting people off who are toxic. People living in sin will drag you in with them. Psalms 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. All throughout the Proverbs, it says, do not associate with those who were given over to wickedness. Jesus said, can a man serve two masters? No. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals and corrupts good character. That's what Jesus means when he says, let these people be unto you as heathens. In other words, Jesus says, I don't care what they claim to be. Anybody can claim to be a child of God. Anybody can carry a Bible. Anybody can put on a suit and tie and pray. Whether or not they're actually children of the kingdom, only I know for sure. But as far as you're concerned, you don't have to take their word for it. You will know them by their fruit. If they're producing rotten fruit, 
the fruit of wickedness and trespasses, then regardless of what tree they say they are, the fruit they're producing will tell you what they are. And if they're producing the fruit that a heathen produces, then let them be unto you as heathens. Now, what happens when... The <laughs> oh, please excuse my outburst, folks, but we are living in sick times. There are more wolves in sheep clothing than there are sheep within the flock. It's sick and it's dangerous, and people keep saying, turn the other cheek, look the other way, forgive, love keeps no record of wrongs, and sheep are being slaughtered. Wake up, folks. First John chapter 1, starting in verse 6, John says, If we say that we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie, and we know not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as God himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with him and have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Somebody should have sent John the memo about how unchristian it is to call people names. He called people a liar. So that's, that's not nice, John. So folks, let's wrap this up. Because Jesus was giving us an example of what it takes to be reconciled with someone who has trespassed against us. But after this, he's going to talk about forgiveness itself, which clearly shows reconciliation and forgiveness are not the same thing. Christian forgiveness is transferring a debt that somebody owes to you because of the trespass over to God's account and lets the cross pay for it. And that forgiveness lets go of anger, and it's necessary for reconciliation to take place. And once reconciled, the anger is completely gone. But when one must forgive without reconciliation, there's a danger of the anger always coming back because the trespass was never repented of. So in a way, it's like every time you're reminded of the unrepented wrong, you're being trespassed against all over again. Which means you have to refresh and reapply the forgiveness. If anger returns, it doesn't mean that you didn't truly forgive them. It doesn't mean you're repressing anything or harboring unforgiveness. When a person wrongs you more than once, then you have to forgive them more than once, right? Well, if they're unreconciled, then it means you're continually being trespassed against, and that needs to be forgiven continually. It's a tough thing to do. If you've forgiven somebody in your heart and given that hurt over to God and forgiven that person of the sin they committed, that doesn't mean that hurt won't come back. Especially when people, <laughs> especially when you have people who have a very naive, unscriptural view of forgiveness, keep trying to get you to be reconciled with someone that God's instructed you to stay away from. I'll just give you an example. Just throw this out there. I don't know anything like this. I'm just making this up. But for example, a well-intentioned, well-meaning grandparent who wants you to be reconciled to your mom or your dad even though your mom or dad is an unconfessed, unrepented child molester. You can't be reconciled to your mom or your dad if they're an unrepented child molester. Now, you can let go of the hurt and forgive them in your heart and take the debt that's owed to you by that person and put it in God's hands and let him pay for it. And when you do that, you'll feel that hurt going away. You'll feel the weight of it leave. But then suddenly, you'll feel the weight of it return all on your shoulders the moment somebody with a non-biblical view of forgiveness starts trying to get you to reconcile but calls it forgiveness. And says, why won't you forgive them? Folks, take every thought captive. 
<laughs> we'll get into this next time, folks, when Jesus hammers forgiveness itself. Not the same thing as reconciliation. And the first step of being able to forgive anybody of anything is understanding that. You don't have to be reconciled with someone who is unrepentant, unconfessed, unwilling to change their ways. You don't have to be reconciled. Jesus and Paul even go so far to say that you shouldn't be reconciled. Once you understand that, then you will be able to fulfill God's righteous decree that all of us should be able to forgive. And we'll get into that next time.